Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with H.E. Sawyer, who is the author of I Am the Dark Tourist, Messenger of Remembrance. Um, H.E., thanks for being here with me today. Welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. Would you start by telling us a little bit about your book about dark tourism and how um, you came to write it? Uh, well, this is my second book. I wrote the uh, the first one was published uh, five years ago today. Um, it came about, I think, uh, by accident. Um, I didn't realize that I'd been spending most of my life uh, in pursuit of dark tourism. I didn't even know dark tourism was a thing. I just spent a lot of my life visiting places that were associated with death and disaster or cemeteries. Um, I was something that in the UK, we refer to as a, a graveyard rabbit, which is somebody who basically uh, spends a lot of time touring cemeteries. So I knew that this was an, an interest, but I had no idea about dark tourism or that it was something that academics were studying. And I came across the term totally by accident when I was um, researching a trip to the suicide forest in Japan called Aokigahara and saw the term dark tourism and thought, what was that? put it into the search engine and then all of a sudden uh, it felt a little bit like my life was unraveling because I'd reached my 50s and I had no idea of who I was or what I was. And uh, so in many ways, um, writing about it became a way of kind of coming to terms with it. The, the, term, the term dark tourism to me felt uh, very ghoulish, like vampiric. Um, sensationalist and I didn't see myself as that sort of a person so in many ways writing about it was a way of coming to terms with what I was and trying to find um, another sort of diagnosis of why people would go to these places I, I didn't think that I was uh, particularly a ghoul or anything like that so I was trying to make sense of it and as far as the book was concerned um, I'd known of uh, David at Head Press, the publisher, uh, for many years. Uh, I'd written for him back in the early 1990s. And it just coincided uh, when I was talking to him um, about a piece that I had, um, that I'd written uh, when I'd been to Chernobyl, the site of the world's uh, worst nuclear accident in 1986 in Ukraine. And he said that he'd been interested in putting something together on dark tourism. So uh, we met over a, a beer in a, a less than salubrious pub in Paddington. And uh, I put a two page proposal in front of him. And he told me I'd got 18 months to go and write a book. So that was, uh, that was how it kind of the book actually came about. Um, but I must admit, there was a certain element of me writing a kind of a self help book as much as trying to explore the actual genre. But this time doing it not from an academic point of view, but from the point of view of somebody who actually had uh, engaged in dark tourism. So for readers or readers and listeners out there um, who might not know, like sort of have an understanding of dark tourism, but might not really know. Can you give us your kind of definition um, and you do this in the book and, and talk a little bit about like, what is that? What do you mean um, when you talk about dark tourism and, and maybe also like how, um, because at one point you kind of talk about how you went to an academic conference and how they talked about it as well, but sort of how you define what dark tourism is. Yeah, yeah, surely. So um, the, the, the kind of accepted definition was um, that the actual term dark tourism was actually coined by um, <clears throat> a couple of academics up in Glasgow, um, Lennon and Foley, and they wrote a book uh, uh, 
on dark tourism following a, 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 a paper that they published on uh, the assassination of JFK and the fascination of dark tourism. It was this idea of people who would go to sites that were associated uh, with death and disaster, like, for example, people who went to Dealey Plaza because Kennedy had been uh, assassinated there. Um, there was also um, the idea of people going to sites of genocide. So, for example, the uh, the, the, the Holocaust sites, um, sites of other genocide uh, in Rwanda, Cambodia. Um, and there was people who were visiting more of, um, how can I put this? Um, sites of maybe kind of like a, a, an entertainment with a horrible history attached to them. So uh, for example, uh, we had things like the London Dungeons here. Um, which were kind of maybe a little bit more interactive and more for a kind of an, a, an entertainment-based uh, education. Um, so, yeah, the, these were the places that were kind of associated uh, with, with them. Uh, they were ranging from kind of battlefield sites through to uh, decommissioned prisons, um, through to plantations in the United States. Um, murder sites, sites of assassination. Uh, one of the things that uh, I was interested in was that I'd been spending about 10 years uh, traveling to uh, the Philippines and all points east on my holidays. I was diving accessible shipwrecks. So that was sort of in many ways uh, something that I maybe brought to dark tourism in terms that although academic had uh, um, academic literature had considered uh, the Titanic in terms of the exhibitions that had been staged um, relating to the fate of that particular liner. And obviously um, Pearl Harbor, where uh, tourists can go out to the pontoon over the uh, shallow wreck of the USS Arizona. Um, I was looking at people like myself who were obviously um, traveling to sort of uh, destinations where they could access and dive actual shipwrecks so they were going to see uh, unsanitized sites of kind of uh, ships that have been lost to kind of the reef and storm and war. So in this book, you um, look at sort of sites of remembrance, uh, which you kind of have mentioned in this description. And so uh, one of the big things you kind of... I hate to say theme, like a theme throughout, though, is the Holocaust and thinking about the Holocaust. Um, so I'm hoping we can maybe start to kind of talk about that um, and the Holocaust and kind of um, why you chose to look at the Holocaust and kind of what you were seeing in some of these Holocaust memorials that you were looking at. So let's talk about like, yeah, could you start with kind of why the Holocaust you feel is so important to um, thinking about dark tourism and thinking about this idea of remembrance? Okay. Um, the Holocaust is kind of the largest organized provider of dark tourism in as much as that obviously in addition to the actual sites where killing took place, which mainly obviously in mainland Europe, obviously predominantly Poland, it's kind of been exported around the world. If you think about it, there was no uh, there was no death associated with the Holocaust in uh, in the US, and yet uh, there are numerous uh, memorials and museums uh, across America. So it was a kind of um, it had been exported, if you like, from where it actually happened uh, globally. They, they have Holocaust uh, museums in Australia, which is a very, very long way from, uh, from Eastern Europe where the killing actually took place. Um, from my own point of view, because I am such an ancient dinosaur, obviously I was born uh, less than 20 years after the Second World War finished. So um, my childhood obviously was uh, very different from uh, the kids today in as much as that obviously I'm pre-internet and uh, we only had, I think, uh, uh, three television channels when I was growing up as a child. Um, so a lot of the, uh, the childhood lore that I experienced was things like comics, which obviously contained war stories. So the Second World War wasn't uh, distant history to me. I was uh, meeting uh, people who had fought in the war, uh, either had been for, involved in the Atlantic convoys um, 
people who had been uh, fighter pilots. Um, yeah, people who had uh, seen combat. And even within the environment that I lived, um, obviously all the grown-ups had experienced the war. Um, there was also things like, uh, from my uh, area of East London, there was obviously, because we, uh, I say we, I wasn't there, but there was obviously a lot of a, a bombing campaign uh, called the Blitz um, around about sort of 1940, 41. So uh, what the government did was they supplied these Anderson shelters. They were like very, very primitive air raid shelters. And you would see these uh, growing up in the sort of 60s and 70s and even into the 80s. You would see these Anderson shelters, these uh, air raid shelters that people had basically appropriated for sheds in their back gardens. So it was not uncommon to walk into sheds and sort of see knapsacks and tin hats from the war and gas masks. So very much I kind of grew up with sort of stories about the war, people who had endured the war either as part of the civilian population or as actually part of the, the military. And obviously there were sites uh, that I would see on a daily basis in terms of the air raid shelters or, or even uh, places where there was kind of like a missing tooth in a road where a, a house had obviously been flattened by a bomb. This, this was stuff that I kind of grew up with. Um, and obviously, uh, reading this sort of uh, material about the Second World War, obviously um, the Holocaust was obviously one of the things that uh, I kind of um, became interested in. So one of the things you talk about is um, going on kind of Holocaust, the way that the Holocaust is used, um, commercialized and sold, like you went on a Holocaust um tour right like uh, uh so can you and i thought that was really interesting and i want to talk a little bit about anne frank with you too because i find um her and like the selling of anne frank very interesting but could you talk a little bit about that like um so like the sort of selling of the holocaust kind of that tour and that experience and what that kind of does as a tool of memory or as a as a way of remembrance for um the actual event mm. yeah no there's uh there was a company in the uk that uh is, it, they supply um historians and uh, a tour leader and they'll take a group of maybe up to about 20 people uh over to various sites um sometimes they'll they'll just do uh, tours of camps uh other times they'll take us to sort of uh, various places in Europe that were associated with the Holocaust, uh, various uh, landscapes. So, for example, uh, former uh, ghettos. Um, I think it's done, it, it, certainly on the tour, is done because you have a historian uh, traveling with you. There obviously is a very uh, strong element of teaching people about the history. And obviously, the people who go on these tours. Um, they are obviously genuinely interested either because they um, are interested in the subject uh, just purely from a historical point of view or because they have uh, maybe Jewish ancestry who was obviously involved in the war and they've maybe uh, want to go back and actually connect with those sites to actually try to um, maybe understand the narrative a little bit better uh, by being in the actual places. I, I was quite interested in... Um, I have been for a while, certainly since I started writing about dark tourism. It's all very well reading about a memorial, um, not particularly a, a large memorial, any particular memorial. And it's one thing to see a, a photograph of it uh, in a book or online. It's another thing to your understanding when you're actually there and you can appreciate 360 around it, how um, the general public interact with that. That's become something that I've become quite interested in, um, in terms of uh, understanding the memorial and the elements in the design in it. That that I find actually quite interesting. How people actually interact with these uh, these things of remembrance. Uh, that is something that I'm becoming more and more interested in. 
um, the purpose of memorials and how we, people who would not have remembered the actual event and would have only read it through uh, either survivor testimony um, or, or through the uh, insight given us to by a historian, uh, how we then view it in the modern world. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting um, because you talk about sort of the, the, you know, going on these tours or going by yourself, but also the ways in which people um, like now we can easily take photographs, right? Easily kind of advertise where we've been and how that changes kind of the the history and the story and the reasons why people go, right? Are they going there um, to pay respects? Are they going there to get a, a good selfie? Um, kind of, right? Because there seemed to be some of that too. Um, you know, why are people going? Um, what is the purpose of going to these spaces um, and, and being in those spaces? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's, I think the, 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 the role of the selfie has been kind of, uh it's been discussed at length I, i'm i'm still not uh, I, I think people maybe take them for for different reasons but i think to a certain extent we have to concede that the generation that's that, that has kind of grown up with a selfie as an accepted thing they are curating their own lives in as much as um the way they might go into a restaurant and take a photograph of a meal that's presented to them, you know, if, 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 you know, uh, either to show people, but I think it's also a way of maybe what they're doing is they're, they're curating their own life as, an, as if it were a museum. Um, part of it, I think, is obviously to do with the, with the media, because obviously I think they have wall to wall media uh, these days that, you know, we're, the, the, the news has now become an industry that's escaped from the kind of the, we used to have it, as I say, back in the day, we, we would maybe have a news bulletin for 30 minutes at midday and then another one at six o'clock in the evening and then one at sort of 10 o'clock after I'd been sort of sent to bed. Um, now it's kind of wall to wall. And I think people have now got the tools um, in terms of uh, the technology to actually take a photograph so that they can, remind themselves that they went somewhere and that they were remembering something of course for the most part these are events that they don't actually remember so i think they need to be they feel they need to be seen to be remembering and i think they would feel quite self-conscious or maybe awkward if they asked somebody else to take a photograph of them remembering so that's what the selfie allows them to do it allows people to take pictures of themselves remembering an event at a particular point in time. So, um, you know, when you talk about this, like sort of remembering an event in the museum, one of the things that you um, address in here is the way in which, um, when you talk about it in the UK and in Europe, um, using the sort of Holocaust memorials and the importance of the Holocaust in um, sort of educating people, right? And this is where Anne Frank comes in for me, I think, um, as an American, often Anne Frank is the entrance into the Holocaust and sometimes the only one for um, American students, right? Like, it's like we read the diary of Anne Frank. Like, that's the, like, you need to know about the Holocaust, read Anne Frank, um, right? And so I thought, um, thinking about education, it was interesting. Um, when I was, we were, lived in the UK, we lived in the in Europe for a year and so when we went to Amsterdam we did not go to the Anne Frank Museum instead we went and found her stumbling stones outside her house where no one was we walked by the museum and the line was insane right um there was no one I'm like well like um, you know we went and found like the the like where she played in the park and went to her school and there's no one there um and so I thought that was that was really interesting too right there's this idea of like how do you kind of educate and in the U.S., she is this tool for education. So can you talk a little bit about that, too? Because you talked about some of the things you found that were problematic in the way um, the Holocaust is used, like, in education or things that are wrong, right, in, in what young people are taught. Yeah, uh, I must admit, I also went to Anne Frank's house and I also gave up because the queue was just insane. And um, so I must admit, I passed. 
Um, I haven't read Anne Frank's diary, I've got to admit. Um, one of the reasons is, is that I knew a survivor, I knew somebody who had um, been registered at Auschwitz. Um, so I kind of uh, I, I kind of had another kind of connection with the Holocaust uh, rather than through Anne Frank. But obviously, clearly, uh, she is in many ways the poster child um, for the for the Holocaust and, and very uh, an accessible way in. Um, in terms of how the Holocaust is used, which is it is something that I'm I'm interested in, because I think we are. The, the Holocaust is obviously being promoted by governments, and I think it's being done as a way to make uh, society maybe more tolerant and less xenophobic and for us to kind of learn the lessons from the Holocaust. However, I've then come to the point where I would be more interested to know is what the politics, what the politicians, what the establishment, what the leadership, what have they learned from the Holocaust? That's kind of the question that I'm more interested in now, rather than what does the public learn? The people who are trying to educate us with this, what have they learned from the Holocaust? Um, the only uh, thing that kind of really um, comes to mind here is when you look at what happened a couple of years ago with COVID, uh, which obviously was a global pandemic, I didn't necessarily think that the leaders of kind of the developing world were, um, I, I thought there was a demonization of the people who were unvaccinated. And that made me uh, wonder what lessons they have actually learned from the Holocaust, because there did seem to be very much a kind of a, a binary them and us. Does, does that make mm -hmm. uh, does that make sense? And, and I was interested in as much as that I would have thought that if the Holocaust is supposed to be the conscience of Western governments and sitting on its shoulder and making sure that these governments behave in a just and uh, well-meaning manner, when COVID was uh, the problem that we had to face, there was obviously a lot of demonization of the unvaccinated. And I was waiting for the Holocaust to maybe actually intervene and remind uh, people who were um, maybe trying to segregate our society about the dangers of that. And I think the Holocaust was quite quiet on that matter. And I kind of wondered why, because surely that was the time for it to come to the fore and say, listen, you do not want to repeat the, uh, the, the mistakes that were made. You do not want to go down this path of demonizing a group of people. Right. So you, um, so that and that maybe that's a good like segue. So you have this. Um, so you talk about the Holocaust a great deal, but you also kind of talk about um, activism, dark tourism and, and kind of activism around dark tourism um, in other ways. Uh, like so you talk you mentioned early on um, visiting cemeteries and seeing cemeteries. And so let's talk a little bit about like Highgate and um, kind of. Because I think I found it really interesting the the various ways people are activists around um, preserving or remembering um, these dark tour spaces. So like the Highgate, but also um, and the uh, is it Grenfell the complex where the large fire was right? Yeah, that's and there's the tower block in West London. Yeah, right. So could you talk a little bit about sort of these? sort of spaces well well let's start with the cemeteries because you kind of talk about cemeteries and kind of wanting to preserve these spaces and this is something i think in the u.s that comes up often too is how do we kind of protect and preserve certain cemeteries and certain spaces that have um yes been like under under cared for maybe yeah yeah no i i think this is uh this is quite interesting in as much as obviously certainly in the uk um our demographic is, is, is changing and obviously we have a lot of these very old uh, beautiful uh, Victorian cemeteries um, but it's how you use those cemeteries I think in, in modern times um, that they've been very popular in terms I think Highgate attracts something in the region of about a hundred thousand tourists a year um, and I must admit when I have friends who come over from overseas I 
take them on the tours to Highgate Cemetery because I think I'm showing them something that maybe isn't on the established tourist trail. Um, and I think these are very interesting places. And um, because obviously nature has maybe taken a hold, it's like you're walking in a kind of a woodland setting in London uh, with a lot of these beautiful sculptures. Um, so you've kind of got history and culture and nature um, all uh, in a nice uh, hour and 10 minute walk. Um, it, it's somewhere unusual and off the beaten track. Um, the, the, the cemeteries obviously um, have got, uh, most of the Victorian cemeteries that we have have got, uh, a, 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 have got dedicated volunteers who absolutely love the place and spend uh, an inordinate amount of time and resources in trying to bring people in to see the, the, see the sites that they, they clearly love. Um, taking people on guided tours and, and and trying to raise small amounts of funds that they can use to sort of plough back into the cemetery to maybe repair um, masonry and, and, and stonework uh, and memorials that have maybe um, been subject to the weather over 200 years. So there are some really wonderful characters out there who, who do, uh, will guide you, very knowledgeable people who will guide you around the cemeteries showing you the, the markers and the ledgers and the mausoleums of interest. Um, yeah, as I say, I, I really uh, genuinely enjoy uh, looking around cemeteries all over the world. And, and I am blessed uh, to be in London where I've obviously got some, uh, some very notable examples. Um, plus, as, as we were uh, talking earlier about uh, George Michael, you also have the odd uh, celebrity who you can go and visit uh, Although I must admit, uh, uh, Pellechers, I think uh, it, 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 that's a pretty wonderful place in terms of the um, amount of celebrities there and people from culture who are at rest there. Yeah, I have to say that um, in reading your book, uh, I realized that cemetery, how many times or how many, like when I go somewhere or where my family to go somewhere where cemeteries become part of that, like when we went to Paris, we had to, right? Like these are the places we had to go. And so I was like, oh, I think I spend lots of um, quality time finding cemeteries whenever I can, whether it is for celebrity or whether it is um, because they're kind of quiet and beautiful places to walk around. Like, Paris Chaise is beautiful, a beautiful place. Mm hmm. Yes. And you can spend like the afternoon there. And and what one of the things I thought was really interesting that you talked about is like some of these cemeteries um, then creating like there was one, I think, that had like a children's art or like right like a right. Like so can you talk a little bit about that, too, like the cafes or the other ways that um, cemeteries beyond just being like this space um, to bury or remember, you know, your the dead. Um, that they're kind of used for uh, young education yeah, or for, for recreational. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's something that's uh, uh, taking hold of uh, more now, certainly in the UK, uh, where they've uh, used a lot of lottery funding, uh, where they've put money back into the cemeteries to try to actually um, make them assets for the living community now rather than just uh, resting places for the long dead uh, obviously as i said the demographic of the uk has changed and obviously uh, the victorians have, have left us with wonderful legacy in terms of infrastructure and buildings and they've left us some rather wonderful tombs um but otherwise the the, the the cemeteries now in many ways they're kind of like green lungs in the city in as much as they were originally on the outskirts but obviously cities grow and absorb them so they have these we now have these kind of um sculpture parks if you like wildlife centers and obviously the, the you know uh, councils obviously want to encourage people uh, into these places um mortality is obviously something that will come to all of us without exception um so they have obviously had to put in uh, facilities to make them uh, I think more user friendly. So obviously, in terms of of, of having a, a cafe, because obviously we um, we live in a society now where everybody expects a coffee absolutely anywhere, um, and it brings people into these areas. And, and and all of a sudden, I kind of in thinking away, it's um, they're places. I certainly found them uh, when I was younger. I found them a place where I could go uh, to be on my own. 
uh, and I could escape and I, I, I had peace there and I wouldn't be disturbed. But I think certainly uh, in central London now, I think there is a need for obviously for, for people to maybe get away from the rat race and, and maybe uh, to see squirrels and foxes or, 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 or birds or whatever. And, and they provide a, just a, a kind of oasis, if you like, a place where people can maybe uh, just go and sit and read a paper or whatever. Um, and as I say, you've, you've got the, the tranquility that I think cemeteries tend to provide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there, uh, there's one point in uh, the book, uh, thinking of tranquility and thinking of those spaces, because I often think also in cemeteries, there's not a lot of traffic, there's not a lot of people driving through. But you mentioned um, where they were kind of fighting to not get kind of speed bumps, as I would call them here, um, right? Because, and I, I laugh because it was like someone said, like, we don't want to see the, the you know, hearse bouncing up and down. And, and so it's those kinds of things, too, that you offer. <laughs> no, that that's 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 Brookwood Cemetery. It's it's it, it was I think it's still the largest cemetery in the UK, and uh, the infrastructure has an actual road through the middle of the cemetery. So it's it's a it's a it's a road that people use for going from A to B. It's just that the cemetery is split into two halves. One's one side of the road, one side of the other. Um, the problem with this particular road is it doesn't really appear to have a speed restriction on it. So when you're crossing from one side of the cemetery to the other, it's a bit like the Daytona 500. So there's obviously cars whizzing by. There's no restriction to slow them down. So you have to really wait for a gap in the traffic and sort of make a run for it. And obviously, one of the things that the, the cemetery uh, society there, the Brookwood Cemetery Society, um, were, were, were wondering how they could slow the traffic down. And one of the ideas, as you mentioned, were these sleeping policemen, the idea of these these humps in the road, artificial humps that they would put in as a traffic calming measure. But obviously, as one of the ladies at the Brookwood Cemetery Society noted, it wouldn't be very good if you were actually uh, following a, 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 a hearse with a coffin in it and seeing it going up and down. So obviously she suggested that probably a better calming uh, method for the traffic would be to cut chicanes so obviously the traffic had to naturally slow down and uh, and to take the bend so um yeah yeah that that was um yeah it was it was interesting imagery i must admit um so you know so you talk about these cemeteries you also talk about kind of um ways in which we create or memorials are created in remembrance and and you talk about that through the holocaust but i would love for you to talk about um Green Greenfell is that um, Grenfell, yeah. Grenfell, yeah. and kind of like what because there are protests there was like this real push could you kind of talk about um what happened there and then what um the plan was to remember and and you know sort of remembering that space like because this was more a more recent space that wanted to write like so some of these are remembering things um long past but some are also like remembering something that has recently happened and occurred yeah so 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 grenfell uh what happened with grenfell grenfell was a a, a tower block in um in kensington um and it caught fire in the early hours on the fourth floor. Um, the fire spread, and uh, although the fire brigade came on site, uh, they lost uh, 72 people uh, were, were killed in, in this fire. The, the, the problems with Grenfell, uh, principally that the residents of the tower had actually uh, been complaining uh, that they had um, basically, that the building was not safe and was not up to scratch. And they actually said, it will take a serious loss of life until something is done. And then, of course, in 2017, that's exactly what happened. So the residents had, in many ways, foreseen what was going to happen. Uh, obviously, um, the, the, the building had been clad cosmetically because obviously it was, a, it was a fairly brutalist block. And the suggestion was by putting cladding on the outside of it, it kind of uh, beautified or gentrified it. Well, let's say the uh, wealthier uh, residents of the borough. And of course, the problem is with this cladding was it turned out to be uh, not fit for purpose. It basically, it was flammable. So effectively they were sticking a flammable material on the outside of the block. And the problem is, is that 
Grenfell felt uh, that the community obviously were, were in many ways, again, demonized uh, in, in the result of the disaster. Um, that there was no uh, help came to them um, from the from the council and from the government. And they will, they have become very very active. I think there's a lot of anger at Grenfell because uh, the public inquiry is still dragging on and nobody uh, appears to be held responsible for what's actually happened. They feel that the 72 people that they lost have been murdered and. and and that there was negligence involved in it. So it's still very, very raw with them. Um, I actually, uh, strangely enough, last week, I, I went to um, the library uh, close in Grenfell where there are uh, a, a team of volunteers who are making a memorial quilt, um, something that obviously your American viewers will obviously understand the, the symbolism of, of, of the quilt making, I think from obviously from AIDS, uh, the AIDS um, uh, crisis uh, and Grenfell are, are doing something similar where they are making this quilt that will be uh, they hope to have it finished by the 10th anniversary and obviously it will be the same dimension so I think it's something in the region of 220 feet by 72 feet at the moment they're taking sections of it uh, around the country when they're invited so for example they went to uh, to one of the cathedrals so they exhibit some of the panels that they've already finished um, but yes, there, there is there is a lot of activism there, and I think there's a lot of anger there, because I think um, they are at odds. I think with the government because they feel the government has very much let them down, and I, I would concur. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it should never have happened, and and as I say, it's it, it feels uh, yeah, it feels again that. Certainly, that when I when I wrote the chapter, it, it felt to me that they have been those people have been let down, and it, it it's not the first time that government has let its own people down. Yeah, I mean, and I appreciated thinking about that. This is not right. It isn't only in the past, right? It is something that we have to continue to reckon with. And I think that uh, another uh, chapter where you talk about that and thinking about sort of monuments and, and what we do, with it, it, which related a lot to things that here in the U.S. go on, is thinking about like, what do we do with sort of monuments like the Edward Colson um, and right? And, and and how do we, it, it, and so there was, you had, what was it, four um sort of activists to pull down the monument and um and so like this kind of thing how um some of it has to do with reckoning with our past as well and how we're not always doing a good job of that in the present right um so can you talk a little bit about kind of just mon like those are like thinking about monuments thinking about how you know we react to that and and how that sort of impacts yeah, I I think this uh, the, certainly uh, the um, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, obviously from uh, the death of George Floyd, uh, that obviously came across uh, uh, from the US to the UK and and uh, and also in Europe because I know there were certainly there were uh, statues I think in uh, Vienna, I, I seem to recall that were also defaced and attacked. Um, what happened? What's happened? I think is that the the current generation have had a, a kind of they've reevaluated things and they thought, well, we've got these uh, civic statues uh, to people who, uh, with retrospect, weren't particularly uh, you know, that they didn't have maybe um, they're imprisoned in a history that we now look at uh, with probably some we probably look at it with disgust. I don't think you can look at slavery any other way. Different times, but we've moved on. And I think that there is now a generation there who think, you know what, these things are not here forever. Yes, they might be part of the culture and might be part of the history. And I think there's definitely an argument that says they need to be preserved in as much as I don't think you want to sweep these things under the carpet. You do need to understand your history and where you came from and why um, certain groups might feel that, you know, this is no longer acceptable to have this on, uh, not display, but in, in prominent locations. Uh, 
So I think what was interesting was the way that the when the Iron Curtain fell, what I think was interesting was that obviously they'd been um, surrounded by statues of uh, Lenin and, and Stalin and people like this. And what they did to solve that problem was they took them away from prominent civic locations and put them in kind of monument parks because the the the, the statues and, and these kind of memorials or, or monuments i think we should say rather than memorials monuments they do have an intrinsic artistic uh, quality and value to them and there are clearly people who uh, want to go and see them as a tourist attraction but i think that was what the the good thing that the soviets did the Eastern Bloc countries is that they basically took them away from their predominant positions in civic life and put them in a kind of a park setting, which then to a certain extent created a tourist attraction where people could go and have a look at these um, statues and monuments, which, as I say, I think have got, a, 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 have got an aesthetic appeal to them. The style of, of these kind of Cold War warriors is very interesting, the artistic style, and they could... Uh, quite happily then, if you like, ape the poses or have their photograph taken with them without being worried about being arrested or anything like that. So I think in many ways, that was a, a very clever thing that they did was they took the statue and put it in a completely different context and made it, if you like, a tourist attraction. Right. So you have these kind of sort of statues and these spaces where people can tour, but they can mm. um... Right. Yeah, they don't have influence anymore in terms of they don't have a it doesn't feel like you're being watched over by a dictator anymore in the same way that I think that was the thing with with Bristol is that I think all of a sudden that they weren't being watched over by a slaver anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Which he, makes. He, yeah. Yeah. He, he goes on. Uh, he, he goes he goes into the museum on permanent exhibition, I think, in March next year. But he will be displayed lying prone. And of course, the interesting thing about it is what happened in Bristol is uh, when they sacked Coulson to the ground, they then basically started graffitiing him. And they've kind of made a kind of Dada uh, trophy, if you like. I think that's how I described it in the book. Um, so he's, he's kind of been transformed himself. Uh, and now he's being put on display. The interesting thing, as I said in the book, is that he will still accrue um, revenue for the city um, because people will come and see him as a kind of a very unusual tourist attraction now whereas before obviously previously in his uh, in his life he'd obviously accrued money for uh, not only himself but for the city uh, basically through the practice of slavery yeah so um i am going to ask you about one last chapter in your book because you um most of what you talk about is happening in europe and the uk but you also talk about dia de muertos um and going to um south america so can you talk a little bit uh, which seemed like um quite the adventure on top of an adventure right yeah yeah <laughs> um, no that that, that was that was very interesting that came through um I, I, there's a, a morbid anatomy i think was the uh was it morbid anatomy i think in new york they're basically they um they they organize a tour every year to, to somewhere in mexico uh to to actually celebrate day of dead and um so i decided to to join the the the, the tour and uh, we went to the Yucatan Peninsula there. Um, Merida was the capital uh, of, of that particular area uh, for the kind of the, the, the Day of the Dead uh, celebrations and, and festivities. And, and I find um, it's, it's, it's wonderful in as much as that um, Mexico has kind of, I, I felt, rebranded itself by um promoting its day of the dead and i think it's been very life affirming um i i think it's wonderful the way they've actually done it um they've, they've kind of made um it's a very kind of pragmatic wonderful view of death in as much as that it's kind of they don't see death as the kind of the end they just believe that the departed are actually living their lives somewhere else and then obviously once a year, they, they come back for the offerings that the, the, the bereaved and the family members have left for them. And I actually found it uh, an uplifting experience. Very, very interesting. 
Well, and you know, one of the things that I loved is there was um, brushing of the bones that you talked about and kind of talked about how like this is also this way to um, continue a tradition and continue something that they don't want to see lost as well. And so um, using kind of, so this, this kind of the complexity of tourism, right? Like using tourism as this way to continue or keep um, that idea going, um, but yet it's still kind of commercialized, right? Yeah, um, no, I mean that's that to, to to me that was that was staggering because that was just such an amazing expression of love. I I I just couldn't I couldn't imagine doing that, and and, and yet it's it's such a beautiful thing to do. Um, when you just actually think about the concept of you know somebody who who's been lost for three or four years and then obviously actually annually unpacking their bones brushing the dirt from it and then repacking it uh, and and what we witnessed was if you like a, a a replication of the ceremony that they'd carried out i, I think a day or two beforehand um it, it, in many ways it's a very private personal thing but obviously it was being uh done as a kind of purely for us as tourists so it was a very very surreal uh experience in as much as that there were kind of you know 30 or 40 tourists packed into this uh very tight uh cemetery with these um mausoleums that were kind of almost like wardrobes uh if i could explain to people uh inside these wardrobes on the shelves is basically um wooden boxes with an embroidery inside what actually happens in Pumach is that they bury somebody conventionally. And then after about three years, they basically uh, dig the body up. The body is hopefully then uh, decomposed and the bones are then basically packed into this uh, wooden box with a piece of embroidery. And then every year, the family go back, and basically take the bones out of the box, lay them on a, a ground sheet, and then they brush them. They brush the dirt from the bones and then they repack it into a, a onto a, a fresh piece of embroidery, and then put the uh, put the box back in the uh, in the mausoleum. So it's an extraordinary um, ritual. Uh, as I say, I think it must take incredible fortitude to do it. But I think it is just such a wonderful expression of love. And um, yeah, I, I just I, I I remember coming away from there and thinking, well, nobody is going to be able to do that for me. Um, so I really did. Uh, I, I really did find that uh, quite an extraordinary experience. Uh, just, just ridiculously um, beautiful and and, and human, uh, and really uh, something that I was very, very glad to have, to have, very privileged to have actually seen. Yes, I will say, like I appreciated. Um throughout your book but in that chapter especially like this is um one of those things where I was something that I didn't really know about and to hear about that and to learn about that and kind of see what that is like um and I will say it you're that um, made me kind of even though the tours it, it exceeded your your um expectations which um were not very like not very high right um like it, i'm like this sounds like a really kind of amazing uh tour for, for yeah no 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 yeah yeah no yeah. because it was it was seeing a completely different culture mm -hmm. and it was seeing how a culture had actually kind of come to terms with bereavement and and one of the things that i'm very conscious of is that i think my whole interest in dark tourism has come because i was bereaved i lost my mother very early in childhood so i've kind of had my i've grown up with my whole life in being bereaved and i, I i've been aware that that's something that i'm going to carry until i pass and i think i've in many ways maybe my interest in dark tourism is is is, is because i'm i've struggled with bereavement or i've tried to rationalize it and i think what was so um enlightening about uh, the Yucatan and, and the Mexico and the way that the that the Mexicans have kind of embraced Day of the Dead is that they, I think, I'm sure they grieve. I'm sure they grieve as, 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 as sincerely as I do. But it, it, to me, as an outsider looking at them, it found that they'd, they'd maybe found a way of living with it in a, in a way that I hadn't. They'd found a kind of comfort that I'm maybe lacking 
so I, I, in many ways, I kind of admired and envied them that they seem to have found a solace and an understanding that continues to elude me. So, yeah. So on that note, like your book um, sort of gets into all this. Your book is is out now. Um, so are you um, my my question, my, you know, usually final question is, is there anything with the book that you want to promote right now? Or is there anything you're working on that you'd like self from what? What's your uh, self-promotion that you have right now? Um, no, the, um, the, 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 my, my publisher, David, he, he would like me to write a third book on the subject. So uh, I think that's what I'm going to be turning my attentions to now. But uh, I, 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 so, uh, but again, it's going to be a long-term project. The, um, the second book is, the first book took me about 18 months to write. The second book took me five years. Uh, the theory will be that obviously I'll start on the third book, but it might take a little bit longer than five years. And obviously, I have to be aware that obviously um, my time is, is also running out. So I'm not quite sure how long I've got left, as none of us have. Um, but obviously, I'm going to I'm going to try to write a third book uh, as maybe as a way of kind of uh, signing off, as it were. So, uh, yeah, no, I shall go back to writing the subject because uh, it, it's a fascinating topic. And the more I research into it, the rest, the less I realize I actually know and the more I want to discover. Which is always the case. So yeah. I will I will ask you, um, do you have anywhere uh that like your next destination? Are you, you have anywhere you're headed um or dark tours wise that uh... uh the pub with Dr. Wallace, I think, is 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 at the top of my list. So I think we'll go and have a drink now. I think that's the first thing I'm going to do. It's a Friday. Uh, we're knocking off. We're going to go and have. We're going to go and have a have a glass. I think somewhere. Um, in terms of uh, uh, of destinations, no. I, I've got. I, there's a few that I've kind of got penciled in that I would like to maybe go and have a look at. So, um, but but nothing definite yet. But the pub is definitely uh, the next thing on the list. <laughs> well, H. E. Sawyer, thanks for talking with me again. Rebecca, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, and I will just say again. I am the Dark Tourist Messenger of Remembrance. Thanks for being on New Books Network. Thank you.